our scripture today comes from the book of Revelation, chapters 12 and 14. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away like with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, I absolutely could not resist uh, the title of my sermon today, uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. <laughs> uh, if you're visiting with us, we do not always preach through the book of Revelation, but when we do, uh, we try to spice it up with creative sermon titles. <laughs> not that it needs any more spice, necessarily. We did take a small break from the book of Revelation last week, and so uh, let me remind us uh, what this cryptic book is all about and where we are uh, in this series. By way of reminder, Revelation is a letter, actually, written to first century churches, Christian churches in Asia, who were living during a time of intense persecution of Christians. And therefore, the purpose of Revelation is actually to comfort these churches. But not only them, the church in all times that faces similar circumstances by revealing to them the perspective of heaven on their plight on earth. It's allowing them to see their circumstances from God's perspective is a gift. For example, like from their perspective, it may seem like God is absent or he is far off from them in their suffering. 
But God reveals through revelation that he is right there with them, that he walks among the lampstands. That is, he dwells with the church on earth. Or from their perspective, it may seem that prayer is absolutely useless in this struggle. It's not changing anything. But God reveals that their prayers are powerful in heaven, like incense rising up before him. From their perspective, it may seem that the church is dying and losing on earth, but God reveals that they are just simply walking the same path as the path of Jesus, which is suffering now, but victorious in the end. See what's happening? See, Revelation is about the end of the world, sort of. It is where all of history is headed, but much, much more so it's about consoling the church in the present by uncovering the reality of heaven to help us persevere by faith. That's what's happening at the big picture level. But that said, Revelation is not written like most letters, right? Uh, Revelation is written using signs and symbols to communicate truths. It's not prose. It's not literal. Using signs and symbols. It's like it's written. It's the work of an artist. It's the work of a poet who's trying to stoke the imagination of the church on earth in the midst of their suffering. But this is also why it's open to so much uh, misinterpretation and misunderstanding. So where we are, in in chapters 12 to 14, which is our focus today, the images before us, these signs and these symbols, are of this glorious woman who's giving birth to a very important male child. And then there's this hideous dragon that is waiting to devour the child as soon as he is born. And if you flip to the next chapter, chapter 13, there's this beast that arises out of the sea, and then there's another beast that arises out of the earth, and they are sent by the dragon to do his bidding. See, it is this fantastic beast in where to find them, although fantastic is not the right word. These beasts are horrific. So today we want to explore what is this symbolism all about. And what I want to put before you is that right here in the middle of Revelation, what's happening is what happens in the middle of all the Gospels, which is there's this turning point where the story narrows down to the main drama, which is this showdown between Jesus and Satan. The first half of Revelation has been mostly about the experience of the church on earth. But now Revelation turns and reminds us that the real conflict at the center of this story is between Jesus and Satan. In fact, chapter 13, what we just, uh, uh, or chapter 12 tells us that the church, we are actually just collateral damage in the war between Jesus and Satan. Do you notice that? It said that Satan tried to destroy the Christ. But when he was unsuccessful, he turned his wrath on the woman who birthed them, that is, the early church. And when she eluded him with God's help, he became furious, and he turned his attention to the rest of her offspring. Brothers, that's the church in all times and all places. That's you. That's me. I think this is so fascinating because it means that Satan seeks to defeat us precisely because he couldn't defeat Jesus. It tells us that all this rage and bluster and fury against us is only because he knows he's a defeated foe. And his time is short. The war has actually been decided at the cross in the empty tomb, but he is going to fight bitter battles to the end against us because that's who he is. And so the author John wants to show you that this deeper conflict is between Jesus and Satan. And he wants you to be aware of why and how the devil will fight against you. He wants to show us Satan and his helpers for the hideous beast that they are. 
and where we should expect to find them in our journey, in our battle on earth. So, fantastic beasts and where to find them. Where should we expect to find God's enemy working against us? Well, first of all, I think this chapter tells us that we should expect to find him throughout history. Throughout history. So on the surface, if you're, if you're reading verses 1 to 6, you, it kind of looks like it's, a, it's an imaginative retelling of the birth of Jesus, doesn't it? Is that what you thought when you were first reading it? And therefore, some want to say that this woman is, is Mary, Jesus' literal mother. But I think the better interpretation is that this woman is a symbol of the true people of God in all times. In fact, in Genesis 37.9, God's people are symbolically referred to as the same way this woman is referred to in this passage. as the sun and the moon, as 12 stars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Furthermore, Mary never fled into the wilderness where she was nourished and kept by God. Who was that? It was Israel. It was Israel when she came out of Egypt and sojourned in the desert. So this isn't literally about the birth of Jesus, but, but it's about the grander story throughout all of history. And the grander story is that it is the mission of the people of God to be the ones who produce the Messiah. The one that Psalm 2 says is the king who will rule the world with a rod of iron. But it is the mission of the enemy of God, of Satan, to try and devour and stop the Messiah from ever being born. And then this is the story, friends, that has been happening over and over and over and over again in history. See, the background for what's happening in Revelation 12 is Genesis 3.15, where God says to Satan, who is in serpent form, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this is setting up uh, the historical conflict between Satan and his family and the woman and her family. And God promises right here from the very beginning that a great descendant of Eve is going to be the one who will defeat Satan and who will rescue the world from all this sin and death and misery. And Satan's going to try and destroy him. He will bruise his heel. But Christ will crush his head and win the victory. So therefore, if Satan is paying attention to what God just said to him in Genesis 3, what should his strategy be? Try and destroy the woman's family. Wipe her out. Wipe the whole family out so that the promised rescuer can never come. Devour him before he's even given life. And if you step back, this actually helps us understand our Bibles so much. It helps us understand redemptive history. Because at every turn, Satan, which is represented here as this great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, this is a, a symbol of the completeness of his evil and his evil intentions for us. And he has seven diadems on his head, which is a symbol of his rival claim to be the sovereign king of the earth. At every point, he seeks to devour the chosen family that would produce this promised child that spells his demise. And to make that woman suffer, represented by the birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So it helps us understand. So why did Satan entice Cain to rise up and murder his brother Abel? to try and destroy the family line at its beginning so that it cannot produce the Messiah. But God kept the family line going through the other brother, faithful Seth. Why did Satan so corrupt the world that God had to destroy it in a flood of judgment? So that the family line would die with everyone else and cannot produce the Messiah. But God kept the line going through faithful Noah and his family. 
Why does Satan afflict Abraham and Sarah with barrenness and inability to produce children? So that the family line would die and be unable to produce the Messiah. But God kept the line going through the miraculous birth of Isaac. Why does Satan move the Egyptians to order the slaughter of every male son born to Hebrew women in slavery? So that the family line would die and be unable to produce the Messiah. But God kept the line going through faithful Moses. Why does Satan lure Athaliah, the wicked daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, to seek to destroy all the family of King David? So that the royal family line would die and be unable to produce the Messiah. But God kept the line going through Joash who was hidden and kept from destruction. This sum, last summer, why does Satan instigate wicked Haman in order to, edict, to, to order this edict to destroy all the Jews living in the exile in Persia? Why? So that the family line would die and be unable to produce the Messiah. But God uses the craftiness of Esther and Mordecai to save God's people from destruction. You see? This is teaching us how to read history. History has been one long narrative of Satan trying to devour the Christ at every turn, and every turn being bested by God, who keeps his promises alive. It's wonderful. And we do actually see this in the actual birth of Christ. Right? Why does Satan prompt King Herod to order the death of every male child to and under in Bethlehem? This was, this was the red dragon opening his mouth to devour the Christ child, but God carried him away to safety so that the story of redemption could continue. You see, this helps us understand all of redemptive history. And brothers and sisters, it helps us understand what is happening today on Palm Sunday. Jesus is riding into the final showdown between he and Satan. Underneath everything else that happens this week, this is the central drama. For the final time, Satan will seek to do what he's been unable to do throughout all of history, which is to devour Christ through suffering and death. And the drama of what happens this week is that Satan thinks he has finally done it. (laughs) He thinks he has finally won the victory, but little did he know there is a deeper magic. And he is bested once again. And as Jesus rose from the dead, he brings that promise of Genesis 3.15 finally to fruition. He crushes Satan's head to spell the once and for all defeat of our enemy. And now it's only a matter of time before the victory is complete. You see, where do we find these beasts? Where do we find the beast of the dragon? We see him throughout history. Fighting against the, the Christ, fighting against the Messiah. But rest assured, brothers and sisters... He cannot. He will not win. Secondly, where do we find these beasts? Well, we find them also not only through history, but also through human institutions. And this one's a little trickier, right? It's trickier to work through because we don't want to kind of we don't want to be the kind of people who are like uh, finding the devil underneath every rock. We also don't want to be the people who are naive about the devil's workings in the world, even today. So what, what, is, what's, what are these chapters saying? And the end of chapter 12 makes it clear that because Satan was foiled by Christ, he has turned his attention to persecuting the church of God. And in chapter 13, which we didn't read, it makes it clear that the dragon enlists the help of two particular beasts, which are symbols of his covert work even through human institutions. So hang with me a minute. 
This first beast that comes out in chapter 13. He rises out of the sea. And he is a symbol of human governments who seek to do evil against the people of God. How do we know this? We know this because this beast is an amalgamation of the four beasts in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, which are clearly representative of these successive human governments that will persecute the people of God. John, John's vision rolls them all into one like some sort of Picasso painting, hideous looking beast. And the point is this, wherever and whenever throughout history you find a nation or a government that embraces anti-Christian persecution, he's saying there you will find the beast at work. For the original audience, this was clearly Rome. They would hear that beast and they would think, this is Rome seeking to devour us who systematically and ruthlessly persecuted the church of God. Again, John is saying, the real enemy is not Rome, it's Satan, as he works through human institutions like the Roman government. Like I said, we've got to be careful with this. But it's worth asking the question, where do we see it today? Where do we see the devil's work even through human institutions like government? It's definitely in places where there's outright persecution of Christians, which is happening even in the world today. What is happening in Ukraine right now is demonic. And Satan is using a human government to make it happen. But friends, can we train our eyes to see it in other places too? Maybe in more subtle places. In things we might simply call politics. In this book that I've been reading throughout the series, Eugene Peterson, he quotes a, a guy named Eric Erickson on why politics will always be a rival to the church. Listen to this. He says, politics always competes with religion. Joining it, tolerating it when it must, or absorbing it when it can. In order to promise, if not a life beyond, then a new deal on this earth. And a leader smiling charismatically from the blackguards. Peter says, Peterson says, politics is often the devil's playground because politics is all about power. And therefore, the church will either be tempted to use it, uh, Peterson says, to deflect our worship from the God whom we cannot see to the authorities that we can see, or to be abused by it, to be pressed into compromise and fear by its opposition to us. And yet, brothers and sisters, we remember on this very day, on Palm Sunday, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Not as a military leader, not on, as an impressive, on an impressive stallion, but on a beast of burden. Not to topple the government, but to give his life for the people of his kingdom. See, Satan even used the Roman government to execute Jesus. But it only served to propel the kingdom forward. Where, where do we find him? We see them. We see him operating covertly even through uh, human institutions like government. And then the second beast comes from the earth. And the second beast in chapter 13 is, is less hideous on, on purpose. Outwardly, he even looks like a lamb. He's a mock-up of Christ, but inwardly, he's still a beast. And this beast is a symbol of human religions that seek to deceive the people of God. It represents false religions, false philosophies that dress up like the truth, 
for their lives. It masquerades as an, an attractive alternative to the truth of the gospel. Think about it. How many times does John's vision uh, in, in, throughout the earlier chapters of Revelation, how many times did he address the false teachers in the first century church who were leading the church astray? Who were leading them away from faithfulness and towards compromise as a way to alleviate the challenges of faith in a secular age? You see, Satan also used religious leaders to charge Jesus with heresy and condemn him to death. The whole point is this. You put these two beasts together and you see how Satan is working to destroy the church. From within, by using the deception of false teachers, and from without, by using the force of political power. He's saying these are the tools. These are the primary we weapons to get you to not finish the race of faith. Any way he can get you to. And when you put it all together, you actually have all three of these together. The, the dragon and the two beasts. You have this unholy trinity. This unholy trinity that is working against the church, against Christ at every turn. And this actually, we didn't read chapter 13 and 14, but this is where you get some of the most famous stuff, like the, the number 666 and the mark of the beast. But as you understand this, this unholy trinity, you actually understand where the number 666 comes from in Revelation. It's actually one number for each member of this unholy trinity of beasts who oppose God, who oppose Christ and his kingdom. And those who join him in this opposition are said to have the mark of the beast. That is, just as believers were marked or sealed as those who belong to God, those who persecute the church are also marked out as those who seek to harm them through what they think or say or write or through what they do. It says those who do not bear this symbolic anti-Christian mark will find it more and more difficult to get along in this world, even to do the ordinary activities such as buying and selling. As was evidenced, if you remember, back in the church in Smyrna, where the Christians were losing their jobs, losing their livelihood because of their commitment to Christ. <laughs> I know there's some deep diving and some, and some out there stuff. But these are the beasts. These are where we can find them. But the question before us here at the end is, where's the good news in all of this? That was a lot of bad news. That was a lot of troubling stuff. Where is the good news? Friends, it's hinted at, even in the number of the beast, 666. Listen, listen to how one commentator says it. I find this so fascinating. He writes, nevertheless, let not the believer despair. Let him remember that the number of the beast is the number of man. Now man was created on the sixth day. Six, moreover, is not seven and never reaches seven. It always fails to attain to perfection. That is, it never becomes seven. Six means missing the mark or failure. Seven means perfection or victory. Rejoice, O church of God. The victory is on your side because the number of the beast is six, six, six. That is failure upon failure upon failure. It is the number of man. For the beast glories in man and must fail. See, brothers and sisters, we... We may find the beast throughout history. We may find him throughout human institutions. But thirdly, you know where you don't find the beast in this passage? In heaven. In heaven. Look again at verse 7 and following. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. He was defeated. 
and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. Friends, this is a symbolic rendering of what happened in heaven when Jesus died and rose again on earth. No, Satan was not literally ejected from heaven, but what was ejected were his charges and his accusations against you. Notice how many times he's referred to as a liar. It's called the ancient serpent. That's the original liar to Adam and Eve. He's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He's called the accuser who accuses Christians day and night before God. What this means is this. The idea is that prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus, these charges which the devil would bring about your sin and your failures could be brought to God. They had merit. There was plenty of evidence, but now they cannot stand. There is no longer any place for them in heaven because the charges of your sin have been answered by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus' life and death. What does Romans tell us? Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? The answer is absolutely no one because the accuser has been thrown down. See, friends, as, as impressive as it might be of where we can find the beast, is more impressive where we can't find him. That is in the courtroom of heaven. Because Christ is there. The one who died for us, more than that, who was raised for us, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. That means even now, right now, if the devil tries to bring up your shame, Jesus pleads his perfect righteousness. If the devil tries to bring up your guilt, Jesus pleads his atoning death. The devil tries to bring up your past. Jesus pleads your future, secured by his mighty resurrection. You see, because Christ is there, the accuser has been thrown down. And not only that, he will give you everything you need to persevere to the end. He will sustain the church as, he, as she sojourns through the wilderness of this world. He will nourish us with the bread of heaven. He will comfort us with his presence. He will protect us from our enemies. He will help us to keep the commandments of God and hold, the hold to the testimony of Jesus. Oh man, Satan hates it when you persevere. He hates it. If you want to take off the devil, persevere to the very end. And that is, that is exactly what is said of you and me and all who are in Christ in verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. You see, how do you overcome the beast of deception? By the word of your testimony, as you hold fast to the truth. How do you overcome the beast of persecution? Because you love not the life of this world, but the life of the world that is to come. How do you overcome this great red dragon and his constant accusations? 
only by the blood of the Lamb. See, friends, yes, this is fantastic beast and where to find them, but more so, it's how to overcome them. And that is through the majestic Christ and where you find him, ruling and reigning on your behalf at the right hand of God. Amen. Let me pray for us. But Lord, as we enter into uh, this week, this holy week, as we walk with you, help us to see what's really happening as you go to war for us, as you go to battle against our great enemy, as you overcome his accusations through your perfect life, death, and resurrection. Lord, we thank you that the Lamb has overcome, and therefore, not only is our place secure in heaven, but Lord, you will help us endure to the very end. Lord, guard us and guide us. Help us to be aware where the enemy is at work, but most of all, comfort us with where Christ is. In heaven, interceding for us and with us now, abiding with us by the Holy Spirit. Nourish us even now at this table. Give us the bread of heaven to sustain us until we come to the promised land where we will dwell with you forever. We ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen.